If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, we are in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. And so I'm going to invite you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Over the past nine weeks, uh, we have been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. And each week we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to leave a legacy? What does it mean to outlive ourselves so that in 10 years, 100 years, maybe even 1,000 years, our impact and our influence might continue to live on after each one of us are gone? And today I want to talk to you as we finish this up uh, about what it means to die well. What does it mean to die well? An interesting thing uh, is a lot of sermons are uh, preached on life and relationships and money and and all sorts of things, Uh, but we don't oftentimes preach about dying or dying well Uh, because people don't like to talk about dying. Uh, It's interesting. I was recently uh, talking to a funeral director, uh, and she said to me, it is amazing the lengths people will go to to not talk about death. Uh, because death makes us feel uncomfortable. And so uh, I thought this morning uh, we would just kind of face death head on and talk a little bit about what it means uh, to die well. Because when we uh, think about dying well, it helps us to live well. And so there truly is value uh, in having this conversation. And the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us a little bit about this. So a great quote from C.S. Lewis this morning I thought I would share with you. As we grow older, uh, we become more like old cars. More and more repairs and replacements are necessary. Anyone else feeling that? Some of you have got the metal in your body, right? Uh, Repairs and replacements. But C.S. Lewis says, we must look forward to the fine new machines waiting for us in the divine garage. I like that imagery, that we're trading in these uh, repairs, um, in these replacement parts uh, for fine new machines. Living a legacy, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the saints that have gone before us, those people uh, who by faith uh, lived in such a way that their influence and impact continues uh, to impact and influence us today. God, as we continue uh, through your word this morning in 2 Timothy, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there once was a woman named Nancy Jones. And uh, I just heard a story about Nancy Jones. Uh, She didn't get out much. Uh, She was kind of afraid uh, because it's a scary world out there. And so Nancy kind of kept to herself. Uh, She didn't go out in the community much. She didn't have a lot of friends. Um, Nancy Jones uh, went through life. And then one day Nancy Jones died. And so the local uh, newspaper was tasked uh, with writing her obituary and uh, uh, and also putting something on her gravestone because nobody really knew Nancy Jones much. And so this uh, task got passed around uh, throughout the newspaper and it kept getting passed around and passed around and and finally it ended up on the desk of the sports news editor. And so this is what he wrote 
on her uh, tombstone, if you will, in some cemetery somewhere around the United States. Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. Her life held no terrors. She lived as an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. You know, I don't mind making a few errors along the way. That's part of going through life. If I can make a few hits and score a few runs. By the way, did anybody catch the score of the World Series this past week? Anybody catch who won? You know, you probably know uh, that the Atlanta Braves uh, defeated those cheaters in Texas. But what you might not know is that the Braves actually made a lot of errors. They made eight errors over the course of the World Series. The Houston Astros made one, which I think is a great reminder for all of us. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going to make some errors. But at the end of the day, it's the W that really matters, right? Making some hits and scoring some runs. I was trying to figure out how to get the Braves in the sermon this morning. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about being a pastor um, is a um, little uh, tidbit into my world. People lie to me a lot. I got a pretty good BS direct, uh, you know, detector, and so I can tell. But, but people tell, talk to me all the time, and they tell me things that they think I want to hear. People oftentimes are trying to convince me of all sorts of things. And I don't call people out on stuff, you know. But, you know, people just, random people on the street, even congregation members, uh, they feed me lines, they tell me stuff. And it's fine, it's good. People don't always know what to say to a pastor. And so sometimes they just start talking and they share things with me that are a little bit, well, just let's say untruthful. But the interesting thing is... Um, when people are towards the end of their life, they get really honest with me. Then the veneer and all the stories and all the made-up stuff, it kind of falls by the wayside. Because there's something about the end of life that forces us to just get really honest about who we are. And it's in those moments that I have some profound and holy conversations with people. It's really rich. While I don't like to say goodbye to people, I cherish those conversations. The last words of people who walk on this earth tell us a lot about themselves. They tell us who they were, who they are, and how they're getting ready for what lies ahead. And so this morning, I'm going to share with you, kind of just thinking about this idea of dying well, the last words of some people who are famous. Mahatma Gandhi, for all he did and accomplished in this world, especially for India and for people around the world, he inspired us in so many ways. 
But these are some of the last words of Mahatma Gandhi. He writes, for the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I'm praying for light. Then there was a philosopher who lived quite a while ago, a French guy by the name of Voltaire. And if you know anything about Voltaire, uh, he uh, was a big critic of Christians and Christianity. Oh, those dumb Christians. And he wrote voluminously about the dumb Christians and what hopeless, silly people they were uh, in their lives. But near his death, as he was getting ready to leave this world, he wrote, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. And all night long, his, the nurse who took care of Voltaire, she just heard him yelling and screaming and moaning and groaning. And her comment the next day was, I, you could give me all the money in Europe. I don't want to spend another night with a non-believer. That was Voltaire in his last words. Buddha lived a long time ago. These are some of his last words as recorded in the history books. I have not yet attained my goal. We can look at lots of people throughout history. Last words. And I share with you three Three this morning as a reminder for those who are outside of Christ, there is no assurance, there is no peace, and there is no hope. And so I want to juxtapose that this morning with the Apostle Paul, a man who is in Christ, a man who is writing his last words to his protege, young Timothy. I don't know if this is the last days or hours, maybe weeks of Paul's life. That's really what 2 Timothy is all about. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 4 this morning. And I want to just offer you four thoughts on dying well from the Apostle Paul. Number one, face the inevitable. Face what's going to happen. Own up to it. Just acknowledge that you're going to die. That you're not going to live forever. So often we go through life in denial that we're that we're going to that someday we're going to die. And Paul just owns it right out of the gate here in Second uh, Timothy, chapter four, verse six. He writes this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Paul describes his dying, his imminent death, as being poured out like a drink offering. And this idea of a drink offering really dates back to uh, the Old Testament, to Exodus 29 and Numbers 15. Some of the rituals the Jewish people would do. 
And on the altar, they would burn and sacrifice different things. And those of you who are reading through the Bible, uh, from uh, Genesis to Revelation, you've been reading about some of these, these sacrifices, these rituals. And one of the sacrifices, one of the rituals is called the drink offering. And so you've got this altar, and Jewish people would pour wine onto the altar. And of course, the steam would rise into the air, and there would be this sweet fragrance. And it was the Apostle Paul's way of saying, my life has been poured out. My life over the past 30 years of following God, of serving Jesus, has been like this fragrant offering rising up to God. That's my life being poured out like a drink offering. Paul knew his time was coming to an end. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was not going to die on a cross. That people who got hung on a cross, they were criminals. They were not Roman citizens. Paul was a Roman citizen. He had stature and status. He knew that he was going to be executed like Jesus was executed, but his execution would look different. He wouldn't be hung on a cross. Paul knew that he was about to be decapitated. It was going to be much quicker than how Jesus died. But I love how Paul talks about this. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering for the time of my departure is near. He's so matter of fact. He's just like, this is just going to happen, folks. It's getting really, really close. And you notice in these words, Paul is not afraid. He's not concerned. He's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He's like, hey, it's going to happen. And I think it's a great reminder for you and for me, for us today, is just to accept the fact that you're going to die and to just own up to it and think about what this might mean for your life, for how you live your life. King Solomon, one of the wisest men we know, he writes this in Ecclesiastes 7. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. So what King Solomon is saying is, hey, you want to do something meaningful? Go to a funeral. Don't go to a party. If you want to do something that's really going to impact your life, go to a funeral, the house of mourning, not gathering at the house of feasting. Oh, it'll be fun, but it'll be short. It'll be brief. But if you really want to do something that's going to impact your life, go to a funeral. And then he writes this in Ecclesiastes 7, 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. King Solomon is saying, it's a really good idea to pay attention to those who are dying, not just to honor them, but to help you to live your life. He says it'll actually make you wiser in how you live your life. Face the facts, you're going to die. Now, you don't know when you're going to die, but you're going to die. Sometimes we think, well, I, you know, it's, uh, when's that going to happen? Well, we don't know. None of us knows when any of us are going to die. You don't get to schedule your own death. You don't say, okay, I'm going to wake up at uh, 6 o'clock, uh, exercise at 7 o'clock. You can put the clock up there. There we go. Uh, I'm going to eat breakfast at 8 o'clock. 9 o'clock, uh, I'm going to work. And at 10 o'clock, I'm going to die. Right? I mean, those, we don't schedule our death. 
But God has a schedule for each one of us when we're going to die. And I know some of you are late for everything, right? But you're not going to be late for your own death. There is an appointed time, no matter how much you're late on this earth, where you are going to be right on time to experience your own death. I think there's some value in talking about death because it reminds us that our time on this earth is short. And the the next illustration I was thinking about, it's kind of like when you meet with a lawyer and you shake the hands with a lawyer and you're getting ready to sit down and the lawyer says, okay, now before we start talking about your case, your situation, I just want to let you know that my rate is $250 an hour. How much do you think you're going to chit-chat with that lawyer? How much do you think you're going to talk about uh, their kids, their family, what's going on, the weather? Probably not much, right? You're going to get down to business because it's costing you and you're on the clock. I think in the same way, this is what helps us about attending a funeral and facing up to the fact that each one of us is going to die. It helps us to get down to business and to be really focused on life. So we all need to face this fact that we are going to die. And the good news is, as Christ followers, for those who are in Christ, we can face death not with fear, not with wonder, uh, wondering, not with you know trepidation and what is going to happen. But we can face fear, uh, face death, much like the Apostle Paul does, with confidence, with boldness, and with assurance that it's going to be okay. Dwight Moody, the great evangelist, uh, he had a buddy, uh, another guy by the name of F.B. Meyer. And this is what he wrote. I have just learned to my great surprise that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. We shall meet in the morning. I love the confidence, the assurance then no, don't worry about it. It's all good. We'll meet. We'll meet in the morning. And this is how Paul writes in his letter. Now, you might think, well, Paul was an old guy. He lived a long life. Paul was somewhere between 58 and 60 years old. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound old to me. <laughs> Every year that sounds younger and younger. Paul is not an old man. And Paul had spent about 30 years from his conversion growing disciples and planting churches. He was very successful at it. He was very good at it. And Paul, I, I can about imagine that if he had not been decapitated, if he had not been executed, how many more disciples could he have grown? How many more churches he could have he have planted? Probably a lot, right? But God said, Paul, time's up. And Paul knew it. And so all of us are invited, like Paul, to face the inevitable. Number two, decide to live faithfully. If you want to die well, live faithfully today. Begin today. And you might be sitting here today thinking to yourself, well, I haven't really lived very faithfully. It's okay. It's okay. All of us can decide right here, right now, 
November 7th, 2021. Today's the day. I'm going to start living faithfully. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus today and look forward. Begin today. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have, kept, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's got this kind of victorious uh, attitude, uh, death. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul kind of summarizes his own life of fighting and living his life. We rewind the clock back 30 years. There was Paul persecuting the church, not a Jesus follower. But one day there's Paul riding on his horse and all of a sudden he gets knocked off his horse and he looks up. He says, who are you? Who are you? I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. What do you want from me, Jesus? And for the rest of Paul's life, he would be unpacking this question of what does it mean to live faithfully, to follow after Jesus? Now, the problem is we live in the 21st century. And as we think about our lives and the purpose and the meaning of life, this is more the image that we have in mind. Comfort. Laying on the beach, hanging out, right? When we think about what does it mean to live a good life, sitting in a hammock at the beach, of course, with our technology, right? But that is not the image of what Paul is talking about, of what it means to live a good life. It's so much different. He talks about fighting the good fight. I love the movie Braveheart. And not only because of the blood and the guts and the gore and the battle, but because they're fighting a good fight. They're fighting for a noble cause. And this is what Paul is talking about. It's not just, um, uh, I have fought a fight. He says, the good fight. There's something honorable. There's something noble about it. And what Paul, I think, is teaching us is that this is the battle. This is what the purpose and the meaning of life is for you and for me. We're not just a hangout. We're not on this earth as tourists on vacation, relaxing and lounging and seeking comfort and all the good things of this life. But God has placed us as Christ followers on this earth for a purpose, and that purpose is to go to battle, to win the hearts and the minds and the souls of those who are far from Jesus. I have kept the faith. Paul doesn't say, I have kept a faith, or I have kept faith, right? Maybe you hear people talk about something like that. I've kept faith, or I've, I've kept a faith. But he's talking about the faith, very specifically. Not just any faith, but the faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is very specific. Not all ways lead to heaven. He says it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus tells us that people try to get to heaven, try to be united with God in so many ways. And he says, it is only through a relationship with me. And so Paul reiterates that I have kept the faith. And I have to tell you, this is one of the reasons why I get a little bit irritated, and it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, when I hear preachers talking about as if all faith is the same. 
Sometimes I'll hear a preacher read a text, depart from the text, and never come back to the text, and they talk about their own agenda and their own opinion. That's not Paul. Paul reads a text, he talks about the text, and then he tries to apply the text. And when I stand before you on Sunday mornings, I try to do the same, whether you like it or not, whether it makes you comfortable or not. It's not just any faith, it is the faith in Jesus Christ. And I get it, sometimes it's offensive, because the Bible calls us out on our sin the things that we're not supposed to be doing, the things that separate us from God. Number three, aim at the eventual. If you want to die well, aim at what is coming eventually. Look ahead. This is what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul uses this language of crown of righteousness. And we, most of us, you know, we don't really wear a crown, but it's this whole idea of, he's kind of alluding to this idea of athletes, people who are training, people who are competing. And when you win in a particular Olympic sport, you get to wear a crown. There's some crowns, and it's this, this, this crown that goes around their head, it's declaring victory. This idea of we can look forward with victory in mind, that there will be reward in heaven for each one of us, for all of us who have longed for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Woody Allen, comedian, actor, he had the saying, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And the people in the audience, he would say this over and over, would laugh nervously. Because that's what humor is, right? A good comedian, they're telling some truth, but it makes us uncomfortable. And for Woody Allen, what he's talking about is that fear of being there. But here's the truth. You will be there. You will be there at your own death. And as Christ followers, you don't have to fear it. So you look forward and aim. Jesus tells us in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus tells us we don't have to worry about death, that we can face death with the, the view of victory, of hope, of assurance in our lives. And sometimes we, we, we hear people say, hey, you can't take it with you. You can't take your car with you to heaven. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your favorite sports team. You know, you can't take your bank account. And those things are all true, right? You can't take it with you. But as you look ahead, you can be a part of helping others to go with you. I think that's the invitation 
that Paul is inviting us to. Aim at the eventual, not focusing on all of our stuff because we can't bring that with us, but we can bring others with us. As we go to heaven, we can be a part of the solution. And so number four, invest in people. How do we die well? We invest in people, not in things, not in stuff, not in our own pleasure, but we invest in people. Verse 9, Paul writes this to Timothy. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Remember Mark? Mark and Paul, once upon a time, they went on a mission trip together. They went on this mission trip and they went traveling around, growing disciples, planting churches, and things got really hard. And at some point in time during this mission trip, Mark tapped out. He's like, I've had enough. This is too hard. This is too difficult. I'm going home. So Mark went back home and Paul was irritated and he said, I'm done with Mark. We don't need Mark. But here's Paul at the very end of his life asking for Mark to come back. He says, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. There's this idea of reconciliation in the relationship. So how do we die well? We invest in relationships and we pay attention, I think, especially to those broken relationships in our lives, those relationships that have been strained, those relationships where there's been uh, harmful words that have been spoken with other people. This is what Paul is saying is reconcile with those people. He says, I'm going to reconcile with Mark. And so I want to encourage you as you're thinking about your own dying Who is it that you might need to reconcile with? Mark. He was the guy for Paul. Pay attention to these relationships. You know, the interesting thing uh, about these relationships is that today, people have fewer and fewer relationships, especially guys, right? Most guys don't have like real meaningful relationships. I mean, most of us have um, some guys that we hang out with, we play golf with, we chum around with, but we don't really have real relationships that we talk about real stuff, important stuff uh, in our own lives, in our own hurts, in our own struggles. Somebody once said, you know, the miracle, uh, people talked about all the miracles of Jesus, but one of the miracles they didn't talk about is that Jesus had 12 friends in his 30s. That's the real miracle. I mean, it's been going on a long time. We're really good about talking about all sorts of stuff. But Jesus had 12 guys that they did life together with, real deep, meaningful life together with. And you might share with me, well, I got a bunch of friends on Facebook. Those are fake friends, okay? I don't care how many friends you got on Facebook. Those are not real friends. Those are fake friends. So few of us have real friends, people that we confide in and share our hurts 
our struggles. And we've talked about this the last couple weeks. This is why we're really going to put an emphasis and focus in 2022 on life groups, small groups, if you will, relationships, connections. And I know many of you are part of small groups uh, here at Faith Lutheran, and that's awesome. But we want to put an extra concerted effort in 2022, and we're trying to open up a few more spaces in some of your groups. So we invite you to bring some empty chairs to your group in 2022 and invite some new people to be a part of these relationships. What does it mean to leave a legacy long after we're gone? It means that we invest in relationships today. And when you invest in relationships today, who knows? Maybe next year, we'll be lighting a candle for you. Maybe 10 years, people will be lighting a candle for you. Maybe 100 years, people will be lighting a candle for you. Because of the way you live today will continue to impact future generations. And that's kind of it, what I've got for this nine-part sermon series. But I just kind of want to put a little bit of a bow on this and kind of let you know about the Apostle Paul's life. Paul wrote uh, 2 Timothy uh, in Rome. He's in jail. It's called the Mamertine Prison. And the Mamertine Prison was really just a cistern in the ground. It was a rock, uh, it was a rock uh, surrounding all the way around. There were no windows. There was just a hole in the ceiling uh, where they could lower down food and drink and, and the prisoner, if you will. And so there's Paul in this dungeon all by himself. Maybe Luke, the doctor, was with him. And very soon... Paul would grab a hold of that rope, and he would be raised out of that prison. And I'm going to invite a, a theologian, a guy by the name of A.T. Robertson, uh, to describe what happens next. Paul is lifted out of that jail cell. The crowds flowed into town. Some were going out. Paul was only a criminal going to be beheaded Few, if any, in the crowds would ever know or care anything about him. At a good place along the road, someplace out of town, the executioner stopped. The block was laid down. The executioner stood ready, axe in hand. The men stripped Paul, tied him, kneeling upright to the low pillar, which exposed his back and his neck. The lectors beat him with rods for one last time. He groaned as he bled from his nose and from his mouth. And then without a, a hint of hesitation, the executioner frowned as he swung the blade uh, down swiftly, hitting its mark with a dull thud. And the head of the greatest preacher of the ages rolled upon the ground. And in that moment... Paul was set free. He was set free from all the hurt, all the pain, all the suffering that he experienced in this life. And he went to the celestial kingdom, to the celestial throne, and he was with Jesus. And I can about imagine as his head, just before it hits the floor, the dirt floor uh, outside of Rome, all of a sudden Paul's like, oh, I'm here. I've arrived. And I feel good. 
Paul died well because he lived well on this earth. He knew what was in store for him. And when he knew what was in store for him, he knew how to live his life on this earth. I think that's the same invitation for us to invest in other people and to live faithfully, maybe beginning today, so that future generations may know of the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the last nine weeks as we've read these words from Paul to Timothy. And Lord, we have wrestled with what it means for us as well to leave a legacy, to live our lives today so that they truly matter for tomorrow. God, we pray that you would equip us, that you would empower us to be in relationship with one another as we are in relationship with you. Lord, help us to die well so that we can live well today. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.